Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our studio Linda Post, who is the founding director of Paradise City Arts Festival, which will be here this coming weekend. I'm so excited. I love the festival. You are the founding director. So let's go back to the founding of the Paradise City Arts Festival. Tell us about that. And tell us about being in this studio with one Rachel Maddow (laughs) when you began. So let's talk to us, please, in the post. Many, many years ago, this is our 29th annual, actually, um, my husband and I were, were both artists and we're craftspeople and we were traveling around the country doing other people's shows and felt like, well, we could do it better. And we also were living in downtown Northampton. We felt like, you know, Northampton is an up-and-coming place, and it seems like a perfect spot to run a show. So, 29 or 39 years ago? 29. 29, 29 okay. 29 years ago. Okay, 30, 30 years almost of this arts festival. Exactly. And, and we do run it twice a year, so there's many, many festivals under our belt at this point. And, um, and so we started it the very first year back in 1995, and we, we had all sorts of issues with the first couple of years because we had never actually run a show before. <laughs> and, and so there but, were a few. It, was, it turned out to be this incredible <laughs> success, which really totally surprised us. And we had a great time doing it, and it was really interesting trying to bring our background on the other side of this business, which is the exhibiting artists, to bear on how we were going to run a show that actually respected the artists, which is something that you don't find a lot of. And we wanted a show that put the artists first. And we also wanted to make sure, I mean, Northampton's a wonderful place, but it doesn't really have a big enough population to totally support a show of this caliber all by itself. And we wanted to make sure that we were capable of bringing in um, visitors from, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours away to make this a destination. And in doing that, I think that we also really helped make Northampton um, a travel destination, a cultural destination, for a lot of people who had never been here before. Right, and you can see the activity on the streets in Northampton when the festival is up and running for the three days that it is. It's always a three-day weekend, and the streets have more people. The restaurants are crowded. I mean, it's it's a fabulous economic driver. I'm interested in this. The Paradise City Arts Festival, you never hear the word craftsperson, and yet there's kind of that uh, mix of... Uh, presenters and vendors and artists. And I'm wondering if you could tell us how you put together who will be here, because it's a just a spectacular amalgam of fascinating, talented people. How do you find them and how do you select them? They tend to find us. And one of the things that was critical to our um, conception of starting an event like this is most of the shows that we had been doing um, were specifically craft shows. They were they were craft and design. They were very high end. They were some of the best ones in the whole country. But we 
we're doing that kind of show. There were not very many shows that combined both fine art and fine craft. And that was something that, given my background as a painter, that was something that I really wanted to do because I felt as if um, we could be very helpful in and helping fine artists market themselves directly to the public too. And even though there was a tradition of people who make fine crafts doing that, there wasn't as much of a tradition of um, painters and sculptors and printmakers and photographers doing it. Was it hard to do that? I suspect that many fine painters, for example, and you are one, would say, really, I'm going to bring my paintings uh, 500 miles to go to a festival, a fair? It seems somewhat counterintuitive, although there are spectacular artists who are there. How did you manage to bridge that gap? It was, it was a slow process. In the beginning, the show had a much higher percentage of um, craft and design to fine art. And over the course of time, I think that by promoting the fine art, um, letting our patrons know that this was a really good place to find wonderful, beautifully executed, and, and, and really great fine art paintings, um, that they slowly started to support the fine artists. And then one thing leads to another, and, and obviously what happens is the other artists find out that their friends are doing this show, and, and they say, oh, well, maybe I should try it. And I would say that now we have a really high percentage of fine art, much higher than we used to. And I would say that probably the new artists that are applying to our shows and getting in, I think a higher percentage of those are fine artists than craft artists. I, I want to hear more about getting into the show. Um, but before we leave this topic, I'd like to know approximately how many vendors are there. And can you tell us approximately how many are uh, craftspeople, if, if that's the right word to use, and how many are fine artists? Um, well, there's usually anywhere between 210 and 220. You know, we have a specific number of people, booths, that can actually fit into these buildings. And um, and we should note this is at the fairgrounds. It's at the fairgrounds, but it's inside these beautiful big barns that were built on the fairgrounds. And they are wall-to-wall -wall carpeted, and we bring in custom lighting. And, you know, this is definitely an indoor event, but it has an indoor-outdoor feel to it. Because yeah, and you have, you have sculptures yeah. outside and as well. And we have sculptures outside. We have a sculpture promenade. We have um, even some of the artists who have booths inside the buildings put some of their larger-scale sculptures outside the building. So tell, tell us, please, of, of the vendors, I'm not sure if that's the right word either, but of mm -hmm. the artists who are there, um, I mean, exhibitors. I, exhibitors. Thank you. There's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, how many are craftspeople? I mean, I love what I love going to the booths of the people who make these pens that are spectacular, and the clocks that are wonderful, and the jewelers. I mean, I just yeah. love the jewelry that's available there. Um, how many are of that ilk? Presenters are of that ilk. I would I would say that it's probably about um, thirty five percent fine art and. What would be the... I, I think we're going with 65. 65%. <laughs> 65%. Math has never been restrained. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. on the other hand, as a liberal yeah. arts major and yeah. a painter and yeah. an artist, do you ever exhibit your own work, Linda Post? Because you are a marvelous, marvelous artist. Well, um, 
the very first year that we ran the show, um, my husband and I still had the craft business that we were running, and I was a fine artist, and we said, well, we're going to take a couple of booths at this show just to, because we wanted to set an example and everything else, and we had some of our friends man the booth for us, and it turned out to be a really stupid idea. <laughs> um, because you can't, you can't be in two places at once. You can't be responsible for two things at once. We were constantly getting called back to our booths, so to speak, to by, on our walkie-talkies by our friends who wanted to, you know, they needed us there. And we couldn't, we couldn't really do it. And we actually said, you know, first of all, why are we taking up all this space when somebody else could actually be making money on it and doing a good job at it and providing a something that, you know, they were there for. We couldn't be there for it. So we don't do that. 220 fine artists and craftspeople. Buzz? Yes, Linda Post, I'm wondering when you said if they get in, is it a juried show? It, it is a juried show. It's always been a juried show. And... It's both juried and curated. Um, first, we go through a process where the, each artist has to apply twice a year. You know, we have two, two rounds a year of, um, of jury process, and each artist has to apply every time to get into the show. It's not like they're grandfathered in. You don't so get who to juries? come in. I'm sorry, who juries it? Well, in the beginning, we used to call in outside jurors, and we still, if we have questions about things, we will ask for help from somebody who we feel is an expert in a particular field. If we just don't understand whether what they're doing or how they're doing it, then we will ask. But over 29 years and then a previous 20 years on the other side of this business, both Jeff and I feel as though um, we really understand technically what's going on in pretty much every field and and you know as a fine artist and a craft artist I've worked in a lot of different fields I've done ceramics I've done fiber I've done sculpture I've done printmaking I've done painting I've done photography I've done pretty much everything and um, so it's you know it's we feel as if the jury process um, first winnows through as far as technical excellence. And then the curation project process actually shapes the show so it looks the way you see when you come to the show. And it's, so when you do that, Linda Post, is there a certain percentage of ceramicists that you want as opposed to fiber people as opposed to... Right. Well, there isn't, there isn't an actual quota... But we are careful to make sure that it's a very well-balanced show. So it isn't, we don't say, well, we are going to have 35 jewelers. We say, we are going to pick the jewelers that we think are the best. We're going to pick the fiber artists that we think are the best. We're going to pick the ceramicists, the sculptors, the photographers. And then we're going to make sure that each of them is a little bit different from everybody else in their field so that it's a well-rounded um, group of exhibitors, both in technical um, excellence in what they do and in their, um, the way, you know, the type of person who will want to purchase their work. 
And also in terms of price range, we want to make sure that we're not, we could easily run a show where you could walk in and say, oh, oh my God, there's a, this is like a museum, but I can't afford anything. We make sure that this is not that kind of a show, that there are things that you can buy for you know, $20. There are things that you can buy for $20,000. There's everything in between. And you can walk away with an, you know, a new dining room set. And in terms and, of, yeah. you, were, you were mentioning the National Contemporary Crafts Fairs, which you used to attend, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the ones in Rhinebeck and Philadelphia Art mm -hmm. Museum, and those always had a time for wholesalers to come when retail... Well, retail. some of them did. Some uh, of them did. Yeah, Does not, this not one most have, of them. Do you allocate a period of time for wholesalers? We, we do not. Um, however, I will say that at most of our events, we do get a pretty high attendance from gallery directors, and um, and a lot of our artists do get picked up and by many, galleries and, or for shows. And many of your vendors actually will take uh, uh, custom orders, and people oh, will see their absolutely. work and say, so all of that happens. Go back to which artists are invited back, if you would, please, for us, Linda Post. I mean, I've gone to many, many, many of these uh, festivals, and I love seeing jewelers like Rob Green, who's been there for many, many years. I love uh, Louis Pomerantz and his outdoor sculptures. I love the guy who made boxes from floorboards of old New England houses. That mm -hmm. was a really interesting purchase I made one year and gave it as a, a present, a holiday present for my brother. I'm wondering, isn't there some... Uh, 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 way in which persons who have been there a lot or have been there often are invited back? It seems they must be, or, and or they just have great followings, and you say we need to have this person back. How does that work? I think that the people that are there year after year are the people who consistently um, deserve to be in the show. And, you know, and we always, we have some people whose work I just love and who do the show two times, maybe three times, and then they'll decide that they just don't have a following. It may be my favorite artist in the show personally, but they don't have a following for their work at this particular show. And every artist has to um, find their place where they will do well. And, and so it's, it's, it goes back and forth in terms of, who we want to have in the show and who wants to be at the show because they feel as if it's a good place, a good fit for them. And our show isn't a good fit for absolutely everybody who has done it. I mean, you know, you see people, if you've been there many times, you've seen people who are there like maybe once and you may have loved their work, but you don't see them again. Sometimes it's a personal thing or they live very far away and they just decide they can't travel that far. It's hard work to be an exhibitor. At a, at it's a, very hard work. Tell me. I, you know, I did it for 20 years. And it's hard work running a show, too. It's very uh, hard work. But, um, but, yeah, being an exhibitor is hard work, and a lot of them travel very long distances. We have a lot of new artists this year that are coming from pretty far away. And, you know, and I'm pretty excited about seeing them, and I hope they do come back again. Um, I hope they find that it's worthwhile for them, but it's it's it can be quite an expense in both time and money. It's also an experience. I love the really terrific food that is available in the outside tent and all the local uh, uh, restaurants that are there, and some uh, not not so local. I mean, the experience of being there 
is part of its joy. We are speaking with Linda Post, who is the founding director of Paradise City Arts Festival, which will be here in Northampton this weekend. We can't wait to go, and we'll be back more with Linda. Linda, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. Millions of people do business with co-ops. October is co-op month. Go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Solar energy? Go co-op. Become an owner member of Co-op Power, a 20-year-old multi-race, multi-class, intergenerational energy co-op. Join with 1,200 households and dozens of nonprofits, businesses, and cities and towns to create and own solar for all. Find out how at coppower.coop. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Linda Post, who is the founding director of the Paradise City Arts Festival, which will be in Northampton this coming weekend, October 7th, 8th, and 9th. What hours? We are open from 10 to 6 on Saturday, 10 to 5 on Sunday, and 10 to 4 on Monday. There's an admissions charge. There is, and we have discounted um, admission coupons online on our website, paradisecityarts.com. And also, if you buy your tickets in advance online, you get an even better discount. And if you come with more friends, the more friends you bring, the better discount you get. <laughs> I'd like to know more about your view of the experience, because it's not just a shopping trip, and it's not just a trip to go see wonderful, wonderful pieces of art and jewelry and all sorts of kind of uh, and furniture and things you don't necessarily see. But there's this experience of being there. So it's like, what a fabulous place to be. Well, and, I I, think, and I'm wondering yeah. if you could comment on that. I think that one of the things that, that we hear over and over again is it's so inspirational. And I think that the other thing is you see things there that you won't see anywhere else. Right. I sometimes think not only did this person make this, 
this person actually thought about making this. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, exactly. And and when you walk around the show, you'll see people sketching in their sketchbooks with new ideas that you may see next year at the show. And and you'll see people like working on little things. It's like one of the nice things about an event like this is that you not only get to see all this fabulous work, but you you get to sit down and talk to the artist about what inspired them? What made them think of doing this? How did they do it? You know, what was that technique? Can you explain that to me? And they're happy to do it. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons they're there is the interaction. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of these artists spend a lot of time all by themselves in their studios. They are looking forward to talking to you when you come to the show. I especially love the, the functional pieces, the the salad bowls, you know, the things that you use because, you know, you go to a a major department store and everything is so homogeneous and it's all just looks the same and it's wherever you go, it's the same kind of stuff. But here you can get something that uniquely... Yeah, and I I think that one of the, the really wonderful things about it is you bring home that salad bowl and every time you use it, you remember the artist who actually made it. You remember your experience at Paradise City. It's like bringing a little piece of Paradise City home with you that you think about all year round until you come back again and you buy another piece. But it's 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 a story, and people love stories. And people do. Yeah. That's what puts Paradise in Paradise City, I think. There you go. <laughs> I have one of those salad bowls. <laughs> <laughs> we have one of yeah. those salad bowls, and... We had friends over one night. I said, what a beautiful salad bowl. Do you have any idea where we could get one? He said, we do. <laughs> we do. you got to wait a couple months, but we right. do. <clears throat> um, tell us about the economics of this from the point of view of the vendors, these exhibitors. How much do they ha- – this is a big effort, which you've mentioned, to bring all of this – uh, all of these uh, wonderful pieces of and art. And not, not only that, they have to build their booth And they have when to they build the booth. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do the, does the economics, I mean, obviously it, it doesn't work out for them, they won't come back. Right, but, exactly. But many but, of them come but back. But in most cases, yes, it does work out. And, you know, some, some of the artists have higher expenses than others. If you're working with high-end gold, you know, if you have to keep your glass-blowing furnace going at outrageous amounts of, using outrageous amounts of fuel. Um, you know, there are certain things that, you know, some of, the, some of the things that you make cost you more to make than other people. And so some, of, some people who come to the shows need to make more money to make it worthwhile. And some of the exhibitors are bringing very large pieces, of, for example, of furniture, uh, not yeah. to mention the sculpture. I mean, that has to be an expense to rent well, some I mean, some tension. of them have their own vehicles that, that they drive things around with, and some of them rent like a rider truck or something to, to bring it to shows. Um, I think that the, the furniture makers, a lot of them, what they bring, some of them sell things outright, but a certain percentage of them basically are bringing samples and then books of pictures, and they really love custom work. And, and one of the nice things about that is... If you're looking at a place in your living room, say, and you need a coffee table that's a certain size and you want it to 
be made out of the same kind of wood as other pieces in the room. It's very hard to go into a furniture store or a department store and find exactly what you're looking for, but you can come to Paradise City and you can talk to a furniture maker and they'll sketch things out for you and they'll show you pieces of wood and you can get exactly what you're looking for and probably not pay any more money than you would if you were going into a nice furniture store and buying a piece of furniture. Uh, Linda Post, founding director of Paradise City Arts Festival. I need to ask this. You can refuse to answer on the basis of any basis you want. <laughs> Do you have a favorite exhibitor? Do I have a favorite exhibitor? Actually, I don't. Um, and I know that that's it's. You were hoping I was going to say something, but I I, <laughs> I, I went fishing. Sometimes yeah. something ends up on the end of the line, yeah. and sometimes not. I mean, some of <clears throat> some of the artists that do our shows, I've known since I was on the other end. I've known for forty years. You know, I mean, that's a long time. And and you know, like you mentioned, Rob Green, the jeweler, and I've known him for like forty years. I've known Ed Spencer for even longer than that. And, you know, there's a lot of artists that started doing our shows because they knew us and they trusted us from being on the circuit and, and knowing us as friends, and they trusted us to run a show that was going to work for them. And, and so, I, you know, I can't tell you because I have so many wonderful close friends that have been part of the show since the very beginning. And you just managed to keep them by refusing to answer Bill's question. <laughs> <laughs> One more time, Linda Post, the founding director of the Paradise City Arts Festival. When and where is it? It is at Three County Fairgrounds. It starts this Saturday at 10 a.m. sharp. And um, it's inside um, three, as I said before, three beautiful big new barns that they built on the fairgrounds and under the gigantic dining tent, which is like 12,000 square feet or something. Where, by the way, there is wonderful music much there of the time. There is wonderful music and great food by local restaurants. And, um, and we're open rain or shine because it doesn't matter. Over the course of time, we've been buffeted by... Every kind of weather you could possibly imagine, you know, hurricanes, floods, I mean, <laughs> intense heat, everything. And, and we have managed over the course of time to make this show fairly impervious to weather. So once you, once you get into the show, you are protected. You can walk between all the buildings under canopies. You can walk to the dining tent under a canopy. It doesn't matter if it's raining. It's beautiful and colorful and warm and lovely inside. Because the sun always shines on the Paradise City Arts Festival. Mm. I love that, Belle. Linda That's Post, great. thank you so very much. See you at the show. See you at the festival. Absolutely. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Calvin could be back up and running by next year. The Gazette reports the Bowery Presents, a New York City music venue operation with more than two dozen theaters throughout New England, has reached an agreement with Eric Schur to buy the property. Schur made the announcement to the License Commission Monday afternoon at a special meeting convened to decide whether to revoke the all-alcohol liquor licenses attached to his five music venues. Schur sold the licenses for the Green Room, the Iron Horse, and the Basement. However, the commission did cancel the license attached to the Pearl Street nightclub. 
No verdict yet in the Kara Rintella murder trial, but there are new developments. The judge presiding over the case has dismissed a number of jurors in order them to turn over their deliberation notes and start all over. But it's unclear why. Three jurors in all were dismissed, two who were deliberating the case and one alternate. Two alternate jurors have now been tapped to consider the case. Tonight is the Greenfield mayoral debate and longtime Asheville town moderator and WHMP's Talk the Talk co-host Buzz Eisenberg is the moderator. The Greenfield mayoral debate between Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner and Councilwoman Ginny DeSorger will take place tonight at 7 p.m. from the GCTV studio. Wiedegartner and DeSorger both announced their candidacies for mayor earlier this year. The mayoral candidates will field questions from a panel of representatives from sponsoring organizations. Some of these questions have been solicited from the public in advance. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze and warm, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 54 to 60. Mostly sunny on Wednesday with a high of 82 to 86. Sun cloud mix, upper 70s on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We welcome back to the show uh, Tony McAleer, who for 15 years was involved intimately in white supremacy and neo-Nazi movements. He is the author of the book, The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. We welcome Tony back on the show. We also have uh, with us the assistant principal of the Amherst Regional High School, Samantha Sam Camera. 
and they are with us because we want you to know about an event that is happening in the Valley today and tomorrow. Let's start, if we could, first with the assistant principal of the Amherst Regional High School. Sam, can you help us? What's the event? Who's invited? How do they come? And then we're going to talk to Tony about his experiences as a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi. But let's start with what's happening here in the Valley today. If you would, please. Principal. Sure. Um, Hi, I'm Sam Camera. Um, You can sign up with the karunacenter.org for an event that we're having this evening on Zoom, which is the Cure for Hate. And it's an event that will highlight essentially the work of Tony McAleer and the work of the Karuna Center and our Braves School Initiative, which we will probably talk about in the next half hour. How about right now? What is the Braves School Initiative? All right. So this is a, an initiative through the Karuna Center, and it's building a relationship between the work of Robert and Tony um, and the Karuna Center. And so we have, a, we have schools all over the valley that have created what are known as care teams. Um, and so each school is going to be doing violence prevention um, with the help of Tony Mac. Ackler, who's here, and Robert. Um, we're doing things like restorative justice and peer mentoring. Um, so it's, it's mostly preventative at this point. It's the idea of moving our theoretical ideas of violence into sort of practical and prevention. There's a film that is part of tonight's presentation. Is that right? Yes, it's the cure for hate. And Tony will be the expert on that one. Okay, well, let's turn to Tony. Uh, I want to hear about the film, The Cure for Hate, uh, bearing witness to Auschwitz. First, for our listeners who don't recall you being with us uh, a few years ago, Tony, you have an amazing story, and I'm wondering if you could share that with our listeners. And in particular, I'd like you to uh, uh, focus on something you said here, which still resonates with me, which is, no one is born a Nazi. Talk to us about your life story, if you would, please. Sure. Uh, you know, to put it briefly, thanks for having me on your uh, on your show again. Um, I came from a middle class uh, upbringing. My dad was a psychiatrist. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, and you know, in a nutshell, when I was ten, I walked in on my father with another woman, which really rocked my world and. Uh, became angry, confused, shame, I felt guilt, uh, a whole mix of, a mix of emotions. And my, my grades went from A's and B's to C's and D's. And at the all-boys Catholic school I went to, uh, at the age of 11, um, they decided to try and beat the grades back into me. And so I didn't get an A or a B on major tests and assignments. I was marched down to the teacher's office and hit on the rear end with a yardstick. And I think even to this day, I don't think I've ever felt as powerless um, and as much shame as I as I felt in that office over and over and over again. And needless to say, none of that approach worked. Um, my rebellion sort of spiraled out of control and I ended up going to three high schools in three years, <clears throat> including a stint at a boarding school in England. And I came in contact with, with uh, skinheads. I started, stopped listening to Elton John and Queen and and started listening to The Clash and The Sex Pistols and I was just a really angry, uh, confused young man and and where I found belonging, where I found 
acceptance um, was was amongst the, the the skinheads, and my parents couldn't understand why. Well, with, with, with someone with such opportunity and privilege in front of them would want to hang out with uh, with these guys who most of them had dropped out of high school and stuff. But you know, they had the one thing that I didn't have, and that was toughness. I was a smart kid growing up. I wasn't a tough kid, and when I was with them, uh, people were afraid afraid not of me but of the people I hung out with and you know what I got from them was attention when I felt invisible I got acceptance when I felt unlovable and I got a false sense of power when I felt completely weak and these are the these are the the drivers the psychological yearnings that I had as a young man that found home in the the, the skinhead and the white supremacist and, and neo-nazi movements and most people think it's the ideology that draws people in. The ideology is certainly a factor, but the ideology was the pill I swallowed in order to get those deeper needs met. Okay. In order to have their protection, I had to have their, their respect. In order to have their respect, I had to commit all the same violence they did. Was there any time when you were involved with white supremacy and you became a leader in this movement where you said, whoa, this is really sick stuff. We're beating people up. We're violent. We're co- we are communicating and engaged in violent uh, hatred. And where someone said, whoa, this is really wrong. This is bad. This is horrible. Who am I? Or that just wasn't part of the calculus. It wasn't part of the calculus. And, and part of the reason is, A, it wasn't just what I believed. It, it became entwined. It was my identity. So Getting someone to admit that what they believe is wrong, that's difficult enough. Um, when it's entwined with identity, you're basically asking them to, to say that who they are is wrong. And that's a million times more, more difficult and, and change once the identity is so cemented. And as a leader, it was, it was, you know, it was a really powerful identity for me. Um, that wasn't going to happen. And along the way, as you know, as I was this smart, sensitive kid, um, em- embracing the, the notoriety and the violence of the skinhead scene, you know, each, with each act of violence, I did feel bad at first. I did feel guilt and, and it, it did feel, um, wrong, but it felt good in so many other ways that, that I ignored that. But each time I did it, um, I desensitized and I felt a little bit less and a little bit less. And after a while I felt nothing. Let me ask you about. The, it wasn't until my children were born. <clears throat> Let me ask that you about. The, I began the journey to feeling. I'm sorry. I, I want to hear about the road back, but I first want to go back to the event tonight, including the film and the showing of the film uh, bearing witness to Auschwitz. Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. I mean, part of what I was into was not just you know the beliefs of uh, white supremacy and neo-Nazism, but you know, anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial was a big part. I was a very articulate Holocaust denier. And so as part of my journey of recovery and healing and, and repair, uh, going back to the communities that I'd once harmed in reconciliation and repair, I felt it was important um, to make this film, uh, to document the, the journey I took in 2018 to, to Auschwitz. If there's one uh, people in the world that I've harmed by far the most, it's the Jewish people. And one of the things we talk about in the film is tshuva, which the Hebrew word means uh, to return. And it describes how we return to God and our fellow human beings through acts of repentance for our wrongs. So this work of repair is very much a part of it. You know, confronting myself 
uh, and what I believed in uh, in terms of Holocaust denial was also very important. And we built a curriculum around that that journey because not everybody's going to have the opportunity to visit a place like Auschwitz, which was deeply profound and 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 moving and Let, let me go back to uh, Samantha Camera, who is the assistant principal at the Amherst Regional uh, School, high school, and ask you again about this event this evening. How do we sign up? How can we attend? How do we get to see this film and talk to Tony McAleer? Sam? Sure. Um, so again, this is the cure for hate, preventing violent extremism in our schools and beyond. Um, you can register at the karunacenter.org backslash events, um, and it starts at 7 p.m. So it, it will allow you to screen the film, and Tony will be speaking with another Brave Schools um, participant. How did this event come about? So, I mean, I think out of this long-term initiative that the Karuna Center has been has been working on. Um, and so I, I presume this is something that the Karuna Center and Tony um, worked pretty hard to, to pull together. Um, yeah. Well, let me go back to Tony then. Uh, Tony McAleer, you've been presenting across the country, actually internationally, for many years now. I want to hear about what your journey back was. What, what was the realization? What was the aha moment, or if there was one? And the second question, the follow-up for that I want to ask is, how do kids respond to you when they find out what you did, what you believed, who you hurt? Tell us about that, if you would, please. Sure. So the, it started with the birth of my children. And for the first time in my life, I was making, I chose to make decisions for someone other than myself because I was completely um, in my ego and, and narcissism. And, you know, ultimately, what did my children give me? And it's compassion. You know, when we're, when we're compassionate with someone, uh, we hold a mirror up and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them when they can't see it on their own. And my children looked at me as this magnificent dad and magnificent human being. That's not who I saw when I looked in the mirror. But when I saw myself reflected through their eyes, through their face, through their love, it began a slow um, thawing process. And uh, along the way, it was different people that showed me compassion. My mother, who never gave up on me, her love for me was unconditional, but her relationship with me was very conditional, taught me compassion and healthy boundaries and consequences. And I had an amazing coach, mentor, uh, therapist, who ironically was Jewish. And, and despite knowing my history, or found out about my history in our first therapy session, continued to work with me and to heal me and to help undo the, the trauma and the hurt that made those decisions make so much sense. When I share my story with, with young people, um, they're sort of, it, it's, it's, it's a mix, mix of emotions, um, but they, they get it. You know, it's when they see the work that I'm doing now, the 10 years I spent at Life After Hate and the, the, you know, the book, the film project, and then I've dedicated my life not just to helping people leave movements behind, but the work of repair in the communities that I've harmed. Um, it resonates with them, with them deeply. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon at screenings for a young person to come up to me afterwards, um, overcome with emotion, tears, uh, crying, thanking me. And it's a very humbling experience to um, know that you have 
can have that much impact on a, on a young person and um, change the the trajectory of their of their lives and 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 it's just I, I can't say how humbled I am by those experiences and it, it happens a fair bit. We are Tony speaking with Tony McAleer, who will be available to you, our listeners, this evening at seven o'clock. Uh, Samantha Camera, Sam. Tell us how, again, we can sign up for this event, please. Um, by going to karunacenter.org backslash events. We're going to continue our conversation with Tony McAleer and Samantha Camera right after this. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. pvhabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Sam Cameron, who is the assistant principal of the Amherst Regional High School, and Tony McAleer, who spent 15 years in the white supremacist and neo-Nazi movement. They will be together at the presentation part of the Brave Schools program this evening. We continued our conversation uh, while we were 
well, just with ourselves in the studio and Buzz, you raised a really and two really important questions. So why don't you pose them, if you would, please, and bring our listeners into this conversation. Thanks, Bill. And I just want to start by saying how uh, moved I am uh, by hearing Tony's uh, story. I've read about Tony, and it's just incredible to hear it out of his mouth. But my question for each of you um, involves the audience that you intend and the audience that Tony has experienced over time. So let me start with you, Sam Camera, as assistant principal. Who do you hope the audience to be, and what do you hope them to get out of it? I look forward to sort of sharing this work with the entire Valley and the entire community, so they know what's happening with the Karuna Center, but also within our schools. Um, So we are doing this screening tonight and having a a conversation about Tony's work. Um, But Tony is also coming into our school on Thursday. Um, He'll be presenting in a Holocaust class and then doing some training with students, um, some student leaders that we've recruited to do this work um, with the hope that we can sort of prevent violence Um, We want students to learn how to identify concerning behaviors. We want them to learn about conflict resolution, motivational interviewing, facilitation and restorative justice. And so we're hoping to move the theoretical right out there, um, you know, neo-Nazism to how can students identify and prevent violence that that may they may be privy to or involved in in our community. That is just so timely. It's it's just incredible. Um, and I want to turn to you, Tony. Uh, you've been doing this for a decade, um, talking about these issues, making it your life work. Um, but my question is, who is the audience that you usually direct your story to? I understand repair and admire you greatly for that. But also, have you flipped anybody who considered themselves, as a result of their contact with you, who considered themselves white supremacists and neo-Nazi and took a different look at their life. I've coached, I've coached and mentored people uh, leaving when I was at life after hate for 10 years, I think we helped over 700 individuals and families, uh, families of of loved ones leave um, hate groups behind. So the answer is yes. Um, People can be flipped. The, the caveat to that I'll say is, is, and this is the secret sauce that we'll be sharing with with schools is um, it's not about going in through the mind and changing beliefs. There's too much resistance there. It's about we go in through the heart because there's there's no defense to approaches that that come into the heart and, and rehumanize the human being. I believe the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of our own internal disconnection and dehumanization. And when we can repair that self-loathing that self-dehumanization that happens within a person um it it automatically reduces and starts to eliminate the external dehumanization so that's the that's the secret that we're sharing tony mcclear i'd like to change the topic just a tad bit i want to ask you because of your experience as a white supremacist as a neo-nazi and intimately involved with those movements do you see a resurgence of neo-nazism in the united states today I see in some places where it is is resurgence. One of my sort of greater concerns is that it's jumped the violence and anti-Semitism has jumped out of the bucket of like neo-Nazi groups. It's become more mainstream, and 
you know what's what's happening in greater society uh, you know for example in in Brooklyn there's a 46 percent increase on physical assaults on on Hasidic Jews and you know why is that happening I don't think there's any neo-nazi groups operating in Brooklyn but it's it's sort of jumped the tank so to speak and and is it and is starting to manifest without the presence of neo-nazi groups and, and that's sort of the alarming part Sam Camera, Assistant Principal, Amherst Regional High School, could you please tell us one more time how we sign up, how we become part of and involved with this presentation, this Brave Schools program this evening, please? Absolutely. So go to the karunacenter.org and you can sign up for the event, The Cure for Hate. It starts at 7 p.m. You can be part of a Zoom conversation uh, after the screening. And, and uh, Tony will be in the high school uh, tomorrow as well? Tony will be in the high school on Thursday. Tomorrow he'll be doing um, a training with all of the schools in the Valley that are participating. All of the Okay, we are going to leave it there. We have been speaking with uh, uh, Tony McAleer and Samantha Cameron. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being so much for being part of this community. This is Talk the Talk. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, Bill, we today are going to continue our uh, looks at uh, uh, the Amherst school system. Um, and just to recap, uh, back in the spring, um, the student newspaper, The Graphic, um, wrote an article that disclosed that some students, LGBTQ plus trans kids, felt uh, bullied um, and uh, at the Amherst school system. That this was in the middle school, and the graphic is the high school's newspaper, student right. newspaper. No, thank you. And please do chime in, because it's hard to know how much to retell of this story. Um, it's a complicated story. I, I think that the, uh, the summary of the story is that many people were really concerned about the treatment of children um, at the uh, middle school and at the high school. And uh, the upshot of it was that the superintendent, Michael Morris, um, took a uh, leave of absence for health-related reasons, eventually re resigned as superintendent. Uh, Doreen Cunningham, who was an assistant superintendent, um, she ended up uh, having a leave of absence. She then filed a claim 
with the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, claiming that she was discriminated uh, as a result. She's an African-American woman. As a result of this process, there are five now. Recently, a fifth school committee member has resigned. Uh, last night, um, it's very timely because last night the school committee met with appointed uh, school committee representative, uh, representatives who are uh, sort of holding. No, I think that meeting's happening tonight, actually. Oh, it's tonight? And, and, and let's, just, let's just add in um, that uh, 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 should not go unsaid that four, now five, school committee members have resigned claiming that they were badly mistreated, um, which I have not, which I'm not uh, terribly sympathetic to with regard to the public meetings, but things that happened to them in private, leaving stores on the street and so on, and they resigned saying that they had been, in effect, badly treated by various people, and that was the reason for their resignations. I will point out that last week we had on um, a school committee member who did not resign, whose name was Jennifer Shaw, who claimed that she has not experienced any such mistreatment. Um, and um, we also, I mean, there, there are guidance counselors who have, uh, whose behaviors have been questioned. Um, there are teachers involved, and obviously the students are, who are really focused. Yeah, and, and to bring us up to date, and there was a report, we have been waiting for this report so that finally we would know what happened and who is responsible and what's the real story here and who did what to whom and when, and the report has been finished and it has not been made public, which I find not totally surprising, but the fact that none of it has been made public is to me just inexcusable, actually. Not a redacted copy, not a summary, not anything from the town. I think the town is actually falling very short in that regard. Right, and, and, and the ostensible reason that it wasn't is because there's personnel matters. Well, no, no, it's, not, it, it's a real reason. It's real. They, they probably really can't, under the Massachusetts Personnel Records Act and the privacy attendant to that law, just release the whole report, which has... Uh, information regarding personnel actions and the like. That is private. It's, it's, so that's real. That doesn't mean the town of Amherst can't say anything or can't release a redacted copy in some way. Anyway, back to you, Buzz. That's okay. It's a, it's a story we could just keep telling, except that we have some people who are um, very much uh, concerned and involved uh, right here in the studio. We have three folks involved uh, who are joining us um, today. They are Ali Wicks-Lim, they are M.J. Schwartz and Amy Cronin DiCaprio, and we'll talk to each of them. But I want to start with you, Aliwix um, Lim, because you wrote on September 3rd an opinion piece that said the victims in the school crisis have always been the children who were harmed and the teachers who went unheard. Tonight there is a school committee uh, meeting. Um, so could you just share with us what your thinking is right now leading up to tonight's meeting? Uh, certainly, um, and thank you for having us. Uh, I'm really hoping that these new people on the school committee can help us recenter the needs of the children and bring the conversation back to them. Uh, as Bill mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of talk about adults who felt harassed by people expressing har strong opinions and people advocating for children. Um, I don't think that any of the discomfort they may have experienced comes close to what our middle schoolers have been experiencing in that building for a long period of time without enough adult support or help. And we experienced real obstacles in trying to advocate for a better environment for them. And the, frankly, the, the school committee as it was operating throughout the spring and the summer was not going to take care of those children. So I'm excited that a new 
committee is beginning to meet tonight, and I know that people will continue to advocate. And I hope that when people come in and advocate and talk with them about our concerns about children in the community, they experience members of the public as advocates and collaborators instead of creating a narrative that our very presence is offensive to their role somehow, because really, um, their role is their their whole job is to be there to be supporting and protecting these kids in these schools. They should see us as allies in that work, and they should be willing to hear the concerns of the public when they come forward. So let me ask you this, Ali Wixlam: that um, there is a, a jurisdictional divide between a school committee and the superintendency and those who are employees of the school. What do you think specifically a school committee? has the authority and should do with respect to what we are seeing is the problems in Amherst? So our understanding is that the school committee's role is to oversee the position of the superintendent. So at the time when there were concerns about the superintendent's leadership, um, going back into the summer and, and last spring, we felt like it would be appropriate for the superintendent as well as Doreen Cunningham to have been put on leave pending the results of this investigation. Now, all through the summer as we advocated, what we were told throughout the public or throughout that process was wait for the results of this investigation. The investigation is forthcoming. You shouldn't be advocating until the results of the investigation are made available. And um, thankfully, we didn't listen to that because we knew school was going to start and we were concerned about transparency because that's been an ongoing problem in Amherst. And so we continued to advocate. And now here we are. School is in session. Kids are back in the building. And the investigation is complete, and we're being told the results are not going to be made available. So I believe it's the role of the regional school committee. I believe that an essential part of the role of the regional school committee is to be able to see those results and act on those results. And, you know, Irv Rhodes said it at the meeting where they found out that the results were not Irv going to be Rhodes. made. Uh, school committee member, regional school committee member. Um, at the meeting where they found out that the results were not going to be made available to, to them, he said, how can we stop this from happening again if we can't see what went wrong in the first place? So does, this is does, let me interrupt. Does anyone have a copy or any copy of any part of this report that they can make public? I certainly don't. I know that um, people who are part of the complaints have received partial copies, but I don't, I, you know, members of the general public and members of the school committee do not have access to that. Yeah, I will point out we had Paul... Uh, Bachelman on the uh, show on Friday. He's the town manager of Amherst. Um, and we asked him, why can't it be redacted? Why can't it? And he didn't really have an answer um, to the question, why can't we get a redacted copy that takes out the personnel protections that the law requires, uh, but nevertheless tells a sufficient story that we can understand what happened here? There's actually a state law that, that supports that. There's a state law that says that when a claim of exemption can be overcome through redaction, the agency must do that. And so we're curious about the, the school's position on that, because it seems that obviously names will need to be redacted, but information could be made available. Right. And just to spend 10 more seconds on this, the problem that the lawyer is going to have is to say, I can redact names, but everyone will be able to identify who we're talking about, and therefore... Uh, the the uh, therefore it's actually impossible to do that's that's what the lawyer is going to say in essence or has said in essence but there's got to be a way to inform the public there just has to be in this situation i totally agree let me turn to you amy uh, cronin DiCaprio. you are a parent um why don't you tell us are you a parent <laughs> yes yes i am and your kids go to the amherst schools yes i have an eighth grader and a fourth grader and the eighth, eighth grader is in the middle school that we're talking mm -hmm. about in, mm -hmm. 
in Amherst. And from your perspective as a parent, as an observer of this affair, Amherst Schools, um, if you could share your perceptions with us. Yeah, I mean, um, I will say my my child at the middle school um, was not one of the ones who was who was targeted, um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the organizing around this since April. Um, I've been at you know all the school committee meetings um, and delivered public comment, and certainly have been on the receiving end of some of the um, some of the criticism. You know that the people in the community have been painted as adversaries, um, you know, uh, adversaries of the school committee, adversaries of the district leadership, um, when, like Ali said, we, um, we've we been showing up and speaking up for the kids, um, for the children who've been harmed in this process, um, calling, for, calling for accountability. Um, now, Amy, professionally, you work with kids. Uh, you're involved with the Collaborative for Educational Services, and so tell us about what you do. So yeah, I don't I actually um, I don't work directly with kids, um, but I do. I um, the coordinator for the Spiffy Coalition, so that's the strategic planning initiative for families and youth, um, and we primarily do um, substance use prevention for for young people. But that's inextricable from youth mental health um, concerns, obviously. So um, I have a lot of background and expertise in um, you know risk and protective factors for for young people who uh, who are struggling. Um, with mental health, with substance use, stuff like that. Um, and I did work with young people uh, at East Hampton High School doing violence prevention um, for the last several years also. So in terms of what we've been talking about that's been going on in the Amherst uh, schools, what, what are your perceptions, both as a parent and as a professional? I mean, I think ultimately, and I, this has been said before, but I feel like it, this really has been a failure of leadership um, is, is really what it comes down to. Um, and, you know, there's new leadership in place with Doug Slaughter as the interim superintendent. Um, and I think that this new leadership has an opportunity to take the first steps to rebuild trust in the community. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, releasing, releasing everything that they possibly can, you know, um, of the Title IX report, I think is critical. Um, I think that you know, like, like Ali was saying, thank goodness, you know, when we were told, you know, wait for the investigation to be done, wait for the report to be released, just, um, you know, that, that, that we didn't, you know, because, you know, kids are back in school and um, we would have the same school committee members, you know, who, who had been there, who protect, and the same superintendent likely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just grateful that we didn't wait, and um, I'm hoping that the the Doug Slaughter will um, will do the right thing and release as much as possible of, of the Title IX report um, to the public. We um, there's so much to talk about here. I uh, I think that that's a, a good place to take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk to M J Schwartz herself uh, as as a parent, um, but more importantly as a uh, a, per, a non binary adult, and as a child experienced a lot of the same uh, offensive conduct towards her as we are experiencing right now. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Miss an episode of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg? Want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. Talk the Talk, Western Mass Business Show, Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, The Hustler Files, Panorama, and more. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley. WHMP.com. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops. October is co-op month. Go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Oxbow Design Build Co-op. Design and construction of furniture, residential, and commercial spaces. Pedal People Cooperative, the worker-owned, human-powered hauling and yard care service. PV Squared, worker-owned, values-driven, solar experts for 21 years. Brought to you by the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops, valleyworker.coop. I'm living the life that I lived before I started having knee pain 10 years ago. Meet Julie, a woman who makes the most of every moment in life. But over the last years, those moments were filled with agonizing pain until she discovered QC Kinetics. Finally, the pain got so bad that people around me are like, oh, when are you getting your knee replaced? I was walking, hobbling. I listened to my last QC Kinetics commercial and I said, I'm done. I got to find out about this. What Julie found out was QC Kinetics treats osteoarthritis with regenerative therapies taking your body's own healing properties and concentrating them in the areas where you feel pain, helping heal and restore those damaged areas. No harmful steroids, surgery, or downtime. It changed how I'm living. I'm able to do the things that I wasn't able to do for a long time. Get back your life before the pain. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation about the Amherst schools tonight, the uh, temporarily reconstituted Amherst uh, Regional Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee will be uh, meeting and uh, hopefully we'll be discussing the important matters which uh, led to the resignations of both superintendents and uh, uh, school committee members. And uh, the Can we stop there for one sec? Is, is the meeting, uh, I take it it's an open meeting, is it a Zoom meeting or is it in person? In person. I believe it's 6 o'clock tonight at the Amherst Regional High School. And is there an, a public speak time allocated here? My understanding is there's a time for public comment and the Amherst Regional School Committee begins at six and the, I mean, sorry, the Amherst School Committee begins at six and the Amherst Regional School Committee begins at 6.30. And the reconstituted school committee, these are persons who have been appointed, not elected to serve out the terms of the persons who have resigned. Is that right? Yes, that's and, and these individuals are not running for election in, in, for school committee. They will, in fact, be temporary members of the school committee until the end of this term. Got it. Thanks. Right. Um, uh, with us in the studio is M.J. Schwartz. They uh, themselves are, well, I'll let you describe for yourself what your experience is and why you're so interested in what's happening in Amherst now. Well, I first became involved in what's going on uh, with uh, the school district regarding bullied children within the schools uh, in May after my spouse had attended the first April meeting where all of this began to come to light. Um, and my alarms immediately went up, not just because of the bullying with the children, um, but because of allegations against the school counselors, who are the people that vulnerable children are supposed to be able to trust 
to go to to report <laughs> acts of bullying. Um, and my understanding at that time was that the allegations uh, were about separation of church and state, that uh, personal beliefs, religious beliefs, were being imposed on children. And uh, as someone who grew up as a non-binary queer child in the Midwest, in a small town, I was shocked to hear that things that I dealt with in the early to mid-1980s uh, in a very small, conservative, mostly Lutheran town in the Midwest were happening in the Amherst School District. Um, my other concern um, is that uh, as a crisis counselor who has probably taken calls at this point, I would say it would be safe to say for thousands of children who are in crisis, we know what causes mental health crises and suicidality in LGBTQIA plus children. And what was going on in the schools is one of the main factors that I had heard hundreds and hundreds of times. So that was what sparked my involvement in what's going on. I have a remedial question for any one of our three panelists here. Has there been a complaint for violation of the school's bullying policy filed anywhere during all this? I don't know specifically about the bullying policy. What I do know is that when all of this, when we first found out there was a Title IX report many months ago at this point. An, um, an investigation at that point. An investigation, yes. Um, we were actually told that not one, but multiple Title IX's had been filed and that there were other investigations going on that fell outside of Title IX jurisdiction. Whatever happened to that, I have no idea. And I don't know if it specifically fell under the bullying uh, thing. Um, I do know that one of the techniques that was used in the school um, was restorative, restorative justice practices um, where bullied children were being asked to sit with the people who had bullied them to work things out. And then when they were bullied, after that, we're offered an opportunity to go back into the situation again, um, which you can imagine the efficacy of that. MJ Schwartz, I want to ask, um, in your professional work, working with, with children who have been traumatized, who have emotional and mental health issues, uh, have any of the kids who claim to have been bullied at Amherst Regional have you worked with any of them? That would not be something that I would be able to share. A crisis counseling hotline, hotlines are confidential. So. Right. I wouldn't ask you about the content. I'm just asking whether any of it is firsthand. Uh, no, not specifically. Got it. Can, um, I, can I just add something on to what MJ was saying? Would that be okay? Cause of course. What, what they were speaking to um, about you know, our awareness of what's at stake here and suicidality and self-harm and things like that. I made a comment about this at a recent school committee meeting, but the reason that the community members who showed up, showed up the way we did and kept showing up was because we understood the emergency. We understood what was at stake and we understood that that was children's lives and their well-being and through their ripple effect, their entire families and our community, because if our children are not okay, none of us are. So when I spoke to that at the school committee, I spoke to the importance of representation because if we don't have LGBTQIA representation on our committees, in our you know, administrative roles in the district, then we won't have people there who will understand the emergency. Part of how things got out of control the way that they did was because there was not enough representation. Could, so it's could, disheartening, could, if I can just finish yeah, this one sure. sentence, it's disheartening that when we had spots to fill, 
for t these temporary positions that you were talking about earlier. We had two people who were self-identified as LGBTQIA community members who were offering to serve during this time of crisis when that representation is so desperately needed. And frankly, they didn't get the votes. And I'm not complaining about the people who are on. It's not personal. I think that they will do a wonderful job. But they may not have the lens to see the emergency the way MJ would, the way I would, the way Amy would. And that's relevant. And it's a real problem for Amherst that that representation is not understood. So when it comes time to put people in administrative roles, like superintendent role or in school committee positions, I hope that the community begins to understand that if they want people who are going to see the emergency and protect children, they need to prioritize that representation. I'm disappointed that they didn't do it last week. Um, let me turn back to you, Amy Cronin DiCaprio. So Union 26, um, that is a committee whose job it is to help choose a new superintendent. So right now, as you mentioned earlier, we have an interim and acting superintendent, Douglas Slaughter, who also acted while Superintendent Morris took his leave of absence for medical reasons. Um, this process is going to be a national search for a new superintendent. Um, what do you think should be done in that process that hasn't been done before? I mean, I would, I would, I would hope that you know, similar to what Ali was just saying, that the the search process, the search committee, would be representative of of the community, would um, explicitly and intentionally include the queer community, would explicitly and intentionally include young people, um, parents, teachers, um, people who have who have a you know a vested interest and a stake in this. Um, I think that the process and the systems that got us here um, are not the way forward. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's really, really important to have representation and inclusivity in the search process. I'd like to go back to another topic that you had touched on in, in, in the words that you use, which you say, you all three say, there is an emergency at the middle school in Amherst today. And what I would like to understand is what's the emergency today that is going unaddressed in your judgment? I believe that the emergency that's going unaddressed is that we still don't have policies in place to prevent a repeat of what occurred. There were supposedly bullying policies in place. There were supposedly systems of reporting in place. And yet children were harassed to the point of needing to be hospitalized. And this was ongoing. One, one parent stated publicly, uh, that her child was, that she had been reporting for over a year and nothing had been done. And this has not changed. We have seen an outline of a, of a plan and it's a, it would be a good start, but there's no um, follow through. So it's like, you know, there will be strong repercussions, you know, for this and that. And it doesn't say what those are. No timeframes are given. So that, that is a public health emergency when we have children who are at risk of dying and the policies have not yet been clarified. So finally, MJ Schwartz, um, what do you hope happens tonight at tonight's school committee meeting? I, my hope for this evening um, would be that we can um, get some clarification about what possibilities there are for this Title IX report as far as redactions, um, given that the school committee, it, it is their purview to review the policies that um, relate to this Title IX. They can't do their job. We have had school committee members say they cannot do their job 
without the report. At the very least, they need to have it. And the school committee has not been given a copy. The members have they not have been not. To- no. And they're being told they won't receive a copy. Yes. Well, uh, we because of time constraints, we're going to leave it there. But obviously, we're going to continue looking at this situation in Amherst. It's an important situation in Amherst. And uh, I thank you, all three of you, for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Calvin could be back up and running by next year. The Gazette reports the Bowery Presents, a New York City music venue operation with more than two dozen theaters throughout New England, has reached an agreement with Eric Schur to buy the property. Schur made the announcement to the License Commission Monday afternoon at a special meeting convened to decide whether to revoke the all-alcohol liquor licenses attached to his five music venues. Schur sold the licenses for the Green Room, the Iron Horse, and the Basement. However, the commission did cancel the license attached to the Pearl Street nightclub. No verdict yet in the Kara Rintella murder trial, but there are new developments. The judge presiding over the case has dismissed a number of jurors and ordered them to turn over their deliberation notes and start all over. But it's unclear why. Three jurors in all were dismissed, two who were deliberating the case, and one alternate. Two alternate jurors have now been tapped to consider the case. Tonight is the Greenfield mayoral debate, and longtime Asheville town moderator and WHMP's Talk the Talk co-host Buzz Eisenberg is the moderator. The Greenfield mayoral debate between Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner and Councilwoman Ginny DeSorger will take place tonight at 7 p.m. from the GCTV studio. Wieda Gartner and DeSorger both announced their candidacies for mayor earlier this year. The mayoral candidates will field questions from a panel of representatives from sponsoring organizations. Some of these questions have been solicited from the public in advance. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze and warm, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 54 to 60. Mostly sunny on Wednesday with a high of 82 to 86. Sun cloud mix, upper 70s on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy or Kelly or Mindy or Valerie or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000.
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show, Bill. I'm having trouble hiding my excitement about our next guest. It's just uh, too exciting. But I'd like to start with you, Michelle Mushabek. Hi. Hey, Buzz. How are you? I'm great. What do we have good, happening? Good to be back here. Yeah, it's always great to see you. We have something really terrific that's going on. Ah, I'm so excited. Talk to us. Well, uh, as you know, I'm a publisher. I'm the founder and publisher at Interlink Publishing, and I'm super excited to be releasing a tell-all memoir by the former pianist of the Beach Boys, Carly Munoz, who is here with me. And the title of the book is A Fool's Journey to the Beach Boys and Beyond. It is just so great. I am so pleased to be meeting Carly uh, Munoz, Carlos Munoz, um, and Carlos, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk. First, I'm, I want to go back to you, Michelle. Talk to us about the book and what, uh, just share with us what you, your impressions, why did you publish this book and, and what is this book really speaking to? Well, th this is a book that's close to my heart and, and it's, uh, it's a book that really chronicles you know, the, the music scene in the 60s and 70s that, that Carly had experienced. And it's, a, it's, it's an era that's, that's long gone. And uh, it really captures that like, uh, like nothing else I've read before. And, you know, at first, you know, the, the saying goes that, uh, you know, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> but I was really pleasantly surprised to see that Carly remembered. Maybe it's LSD that did that to him, to his brain. <laughs> but he remembered so much of that, that period. Well, Carly, you have well, a right to remain silent. Well, but... Oh, yeah, right. Well, believe me, I had a hard time remembering. <laughs> but I did make my uh, best effort to do that. I, I actually... I had to kind of go into a trance, you know, to, to just remember details as best I, as I could to uh, get in the moment. And that was kind of fun. In, in terms of your remembering things, if I might, did you look at the biopic about Brian Wilson, Love and Mercy? Did you look at the, yes. uh, the documentary as well? And were they helpful for you in terms of jogging your memory of what really happened? Well, yeah, I, I saw the, the premiere in New York, which I really, really enjoyed, and, and my thoughts on it were that it's, it's so, uh, it's really the real deal. Even, I mean, the reality of it is even more dramatic, but especially the nemesis and things like that. So, yeah, it might have helped some, but it, it was a different view because it was a period when, particularly, I wasn't there mostly, which is after he, he met his wife. Uh, Brian Wilson, we're Brian talking. Wilson, yes. yes. Okay, of oh, the Beach Boys. Please continue. 
Uh, Carly Munoz, I, I want to get back to A Fool's Journey, which, is, uh, which speaks about your experience uh, with the Beach Boys and beyond. But I, I want to just turn to that period. I mean, you and your fellow musicians impacted the lives of so many people. Your songs were, they marked a whole era in U.S. history. And I can only ask you what that meant to you at the time. Were you aware of how impactful your music was? Well, yes, it was, uh, I could say, hot and cold. Um, at times, I was uh, pondering on uh, times that, like, for example, like some of the early concerts I did with them, which I did on percussion, by the way, um, that were in New York. One of them was at Central Park, and, and I was still, like, really the experience of uh, being down and out in New York was still green on me, and, and I was thinking... Wow, like just a few years back, I was like panhandling here in the streets of New York. And here I am with this uh, huge crowd, this free concert in, in Central Park. And every New Yorker you could see was like was bulging into that area. And, and it was like a, like a dichotomy. You know, it was, it was like, I didn't know what to make of it. It was like, I was happy. I was puzzled. It was like, what, you know? This is going on. It's just overwhelming. You know. It's so, overwhelming, yes. So you're an obviously gifted pianist, um, but you began as a percussionist with the Beach Boys. How did that happen? Well, uh, I was in New York with um, my band, a band that I co-founded in, in Puerto Rico, which got, became very big. In fact, was very big in New York. We, we wandered to New York. I, we took a plane with our instruments from St. Thomas, where we had been playing at the time, and... And uh, two weeks from being there with no plan at all and no money, we got a job at uh, Scott Muniz, uh, Rolling Stone in the city. Not only a job, but we got to be the house band. And we were filling the place every night, and we, we got very popular there. So uh, the girlfriend of our drummer, uh, in, then later in 1969, I got an invitation to go to New York for a weekend, and uh, her name was Sally, and she, gave, she said, Carly, here's this... No, number of a, a boyfriend, I, I, someone I went out with that played with the Beach Boys. So I just put it away. But then later on, by the way, I stayed 16 years from that weekend, never came back. <laughs> so uh, a few months later, I pulled up this little paper I had in my wallet just out of curiosity and called. It was Mike, uh, Mike Kowalski, who had been playing with, with them for a long time. No, no, I'm sorry, it was Ed Carter. So Ed Carter and Mike Kowalski, they were at, uh, Mike had a, a house in Topanga, and they invited me. I called them and I introduced myself, invited them to go jam with them. So during that jam, uh, they asked me if I play percussion, if I'd be interested in doing a concert, uh, going on tour with the Beach Boy playing percussion. I said, sure. Give me a minute. Let me think yeah, about right, it. Yeah. Right, right. So I didn't, I mean, I, I had the idea of percussion, but it, I thought it'd be a simple matter. Michelle Mushabet, what did the Beach Boys mean to you back well, I, as, as you know, I grew up in Beirut, and we grew up listening to the Beach Boys all the time, you know, and it's uh, surfing music, it's fun, it's uh, exciting, it's, 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 it's the era of, of uh, experimentation, and, and uh, so it, it meant a lot to me, because I had a rock band in, in Beirut as well, and I played a lot of Beach Boys songs, you know, so yeah, it was... Uh, how did you guys find each other for this book? 
Yeah. Well, as you know, I, I spend a lot of time in, in Puerto Rico. I escaped the harsh New England weather here. And I, I, uh, in, uh, Don't worry, it's getting my, milder every day. <laughs> yes. My wife and I live in, in, in Puerto Rico between December and April. And of course, we, uh, we met uh, Carly nearly 20 years ago, and we became really close friends. And I go to his place, and we jam together and, and all that. But during the pandemic... Carly decided to write a book, and he told me about it. And to be honest with you, I dreaded it because, <laughs> because I said, he can, he can, he's a great pianist, but can he write? And he knows I'm a publisher, and I'm his friend. And, uh, but he sent me the manuscript, and I was really blown away. Uh, he, what blew you away? Uh, There's his style of writing. It's a page turner. It's a, you know... All, all this information that he remembered about the times, about the, the especially also the, uh, the the information about the the members of the bands, the people he played with, you know, at 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 that time is it's uh, it was pretty amazing, you know. So yes, I I agreed to publish it, you know, and here we are, and we're. Uh, on Thursday, we have, uh, we have a big event at Sage Hall at Smith College at 7 p.m., and it's free and open to the public. It's free? Yes, and Carly will be, will be in conversation with uh, uh, Jim Hicks, the, the editor of the Massachusetts Review. The Massachusetts Review just excerpted a chapter from this book in their, in their issue this month. So he'll be in conversation with Carly, and after that, we're going to have uh, a concert with uh, Carly Munoz Quintet. Yeah, it's just such an incredible night to look forward to. Um, Carly, were you you had an extraordinary experience? You just touched on it a little bit. Is it the purpose of the book to, for us to share that experience? For us to get a taste of what it's like to be. Uh, a musician with a group as iconic as the Beach Boys. Absolutely, I'm. I'm hoping that there, there will be a, from pers personal lessons learned. That I mean, I always said if 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 somehow my experience could save one life and maybe that life could save another one, that I will totally feel accomplished. But because there's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm practically naked in the book. It's like you might as well be called the Confessions of San Carlos. You know, uh, it's just. Um, Brutally honest. And in the book, A Fool's Journey to the Beach Boys and Beyond by Carly Munoz, what is it that might save one person? What, what messages did you deliver? What stories did you tell that, that might have that kind of an impact that it could save one person's life? Well, there are a lot of messages, but I think the, uh, the way... Uh, Parents uh, deal with their children and regarding the drugs and hallucinogenics and and uh, and the issues of trust with uh, parents and children and um, you know that that sort of thing I think is is quite impactful. I'd like to ask this: the Beach Boys at the time had this image of being clean and pure and right. surfers and right. nice people. Um, <laughs> The the reality was different, and the u drug use was really prevalent. I wish you'd comment on that. Uh, yeah, I mean they 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 were they are and, and part of them uh, the Beach Boys were divided really. I mean the, the, to the to the extremes that two different jets were used, you know, for for the uh, you know the good guys and the infamous, you know, and bad guys. And guess where I was. 
and we were the meat eaters. Uh, they were the vegetarians who were the meat eaters. Uh, we were the smokers. Uh, they didn't do drugs. They did TM. We didn't do TM. Transcendental meditation. Yeah, right. And uh, we did everything they didn't do, and, and they uh, they were upset because we didn't have their life and we didn't give a, a thing, you know, about <laughs> what they thought. Well at done. The time. Thing is a good word. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> what what made you so successful at making music together when you had to take separate jets to even get to the concerts? What what worked and why? Well, when it came push, uh, push to shove and uh, on the stage, it's like we were all doing the same thing. We were all playing music, we were all having fun doing it. The people out there were having fun the way we, we were received, especially the East Coast was always very, very vibrant. I mean, it was always my favorite. And I, I think the group was favorite all around. And uh, because people were so appreciative and hungry for, for, for the, that music, and, and it was just a joy. The moment where we get near the stage, that roar, which basically lasted throughout the middle of the concert. And then, you know, the multiple encores we, we had to do to uh, satiate that uh, joy. Well, um, I am just so much looking forward. I'm, I'm in the studio. I'm looking at a keyboard. I'm looking at Carly Munoz himself. Uh, and I want to get a taste of what's going to be uh, available for people for free. So could you tell us one more time, Michelle, before we take a break, uh, about the what's and the where's? Yes, it's on Thursday, October the 5th at Sage Hall, uh, Sweeney Auditorium at Smith College. And uh, Carly will be in conversation with uh, Professor Jim Hicks of the Massachusetts Review There'll be an opportunity for Q&As from the audience, and then we're going to have a concert with uh, Carly Munoz and his quintet. And we are going to get a taste of that concert right after this. Uh. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head I hear the sound of a gentle on the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitation You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. 
There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with, uh, uh, with Carly Munoz, who has written his uh, memoir, uh, Fool's Journey to the Beach Boys and Beyond. And we're going to continue our conversation with that, but not before Michelle uh, Mushabek and uh, Carly Munoz give us a, a taste of the concert that will be happening beginning at 7 o'clock with a Q&A. We'll talk more about that at Smith College on Thursday night. Here's just a taste of the concert that will ensue after the Q&A. <laughs> I don't words fail me really that that was just um that's not the C F and G that I remember from most of the Beat Boys songs uh. 
there's just that was incredibly creative and uh, improvisational, both on Michelle's part on percussion and also Carly Munoz's part. So you are now a jazz, uh, well, you have been for a very long time, also a jazz interpretive player as well, right? Well, yeah. By the way, I never have a clue of what I'm going to play or why. <laughs> That's good because I never have a, a clue what I'm going to say or why. Right. So we're both playing jazz in a way. So uh, I could have done just well, a baseball song or nothing or just uh, improvise, which I started with. I just started with just basic. Yeah, you, you just know. you just went. It was right, a beautiful right. thing to watch, and I watched. Uh, far more black keys going down than I saw white keys going oh, okay. down. So there were a lot of flats and sharps in that. So during the concert, most likely won't have anything to do with what I play today. It will be completely different. It'll be the crowd. It'll be I play for whatever the moment is. You know, the people and feel what you know. That tells me a lot. Who's there and what they're doing. I just I just love how your creativity just flows out. So um, I I have to ask um, this. It's so different than the Beach Boys, which was so rehearsed and uh, right. You could anticipate structure, yes. structure, and but this is anything but structure. Anything but structure. So does one flow from the other, or you just like them both? I, I love, you know, if if there's one thing that I that I've noticed about myself, you know, that's particular is is uh, that I can I can flow in, in jazz and the rock. Just as one, they're completely different. Even even the jokes are different. You know, jazz musician jokes and rock musician jokes and everything, the demeanor, ev- everything about it is is different. So, I can I can wear the the two hats, um, which is kind of unusual. I mean, you know, like they say, like uh, rock musicians can play jazz, which on the most part is very true. But I also say jazz musicians can't play rock. You know, it's a whole different feel. It's a whole different uh, mentality. And so many of both were trained as classical musicians. Right. So it, it is just really interesting. I, I want to turn to you, Michelle Mushabek, and I want to, of course, talk more about Thursday's uh, event. But uh, you are uh, so familiar with the publishing industry as a publisher of Interlink Publishing. Um, what is it that struck you about this book? I know that you have a friendship with Carly that predates the book, but... Um, why should people make sure they get to their independent bookstore and pick up a copy of Fool's Journey? Well, it's 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 really, as I said earlier, it's really a chronicle of a time that's long gone, and uh, and and Carly captures it so beautifully in 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 his writing, and especially it's really populated with an eclectic cast of artists, musicians, clairvoyants, record producers. Uh, hippies, hobos, and superstars, and it's 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 a it's a vivid snapshot of an era-defining moment that will never be repeated again. You know, it's. Uh, but although uh, Carly toured with with the Beach Boys from 1968 until 1980, 81, 1980, 81. Uh, he toured with them for over over ten years. Uh, and partied with lots of rock stars, and and he was he was just an. So tell us when is the event? How could people get there? Uh, the event is at Smith College Sage Hall Sweeney Auditorium at seven p.m. Free and open to the public. It was with Carly Munoz, and there'll be a concert with a quintet, a jazz quintet. It is an event that we should not miss. It just sounds incredible. Carly is my honor, our honor. To meet you, the book is A Fool's Journey to the Beach Boys and Beyond. Thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, 
Thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Buzz. I hope to see you all. Thank you, Bill. Yes, mucho gusto. Mucho gusto. Thank you. We'll be talking to you tomorrow. In the United States, one in four women and one in seven men are victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. 60% of Americans know a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. These are your neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, maybe even family members. 75% of Americans say they would step in and help if they saw even a stranger being abused. More and more people are stepping up and talking about it. Let's make it happen. Nelquist, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. If you or someone you know needs Nelquist, please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street, Greenfield, Nelquist.org, N-E-L-Q-U-I-T.